Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to the closing words of uh, this letter of the Apostle Paul. Tonight we finish a study we began in January. Uh, What have we seen so far? Well, Corinth was a messed up church. They were fighting against each other. There were divisions in the church. They were spiritually immature and arrogant. They acted like evil, even incest was no big deal, and their pagan neighbors knew that was bad. They were tempting one another to adultery and idolatry. At the Lord's Supper, some of them were getting drunk, and others were pigging out, so some people had nothing. Their worship was disorganized chaos, and the speakers would all get up at once and talk over one another. And some of them, as we saw in chapter 15, had begun to deny the resurrection and so robbed Christians of our greatest hope. They were a train wreck. And yet, we said this the first or second week we started, what a relief. What a relief to know that you can be a true church and still this messed up. Now, that is not an excuse to do evil, but it helps to know Christians really do sin in significant ways, and that the gospel is for sinners. And as Paul says in chapter 1, that God is faithful, and he will sustain us to the end, guiltless on the day that Christ returns. Why? Because Jesus is all our righteousness, and therefore Christians boast Boast in the Lord and not in themselves. And so this letter uh, walks us through uh, a nasty situation. And now Paul ends his words. Along the way, he's been teaching and correcting and rebuking and aiming to see them become more like Jesus. Now we turn to the closing words. and, And I just have to wonder if you've been with us, and I apologize if you haven't, I wonder if you could say that you feel like, you know, some of these Corinthian Christians could be your friends, uh, or rather that you could actually be a friend to a Corinthian type Christian, or that you could have anything good to say about them at all. Or put it this way, if you wrote this letter, what would be the last thing you would want them to hear from you? Well, this is what Paul said to them. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 24. Hear now the word of God. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. And to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Quilla and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty Greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet 
one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. May God write this on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that we've heard. And tonight we thank you for this word. And we pray that you would be gracious to our souls in Jesus by it. And help us like Paul to love as we have been loved. I pray that you'd be our teacher and our God. I pray that you would shape us and change us and equip us for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Don McCullough, in his book, Waking from the American Dream, tells a story about World War II. During World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal energy. Winston Churchill gathered together the labor leaders to enlist their support, and at the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a national parade, which he knew would be held after the war. First, he said, would come the sailors who had kept the vital sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come the pilots who had driven the German Air Force from the skies. And last of all, said Churchill, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. Someone would cry from the crowd, And where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. <laughs> and so, McCullough says, not all the jobs in a church are prominent and glamorous, but it is often the people with faces to the coal who help the church accomplish its mission. Paul names some of those kinds of laborers here in this passage, people we may never have heard of until tonight. And he calls the Corinthians and us to honor such as these. So let's do so. Let me walk you through the passage in three main parts with, parts with Paul's major conclusion. The three parts are this. In verses 15 and 16, he tells us about Stephanus and his household. At verse 17, he tells you about Stephanus Fortunatus and Achaicus. In verses 19 and 20, he tells you about the churches in Asia and Aquila and Priscilla, his wife. Paul mentions them as good examples, and then he exhorts us based on their example. And then at verses 21 to 24, in his own pen, he makes his own final greeting. And so, so three sections about three kinds of people, and then a final conclusion. In the first place, what does Paul say to them? What should we learn from him? Uh, in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Submit to those who serve you. 
Now I urge you, brothers, he begins, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. Be subject, he says, to those who serve. Submit yourself to them. That's his point. His positive example here is the service of the household of Stephanus. They were the first fruits of the gospel in that region. He had been converted early in the life of the church. And then he and his whole household, we learned from chapter 1, were some of the first believers and only believers Paul ever baptized in Corinth. Now, having become Christians, what did these new disciples do as Christians? How did they live? They devoted themselves to the service of the saints, he says. They, as the King James puts it, they addicted themselves to the ministry. It's that strong. Day after day, week after week, again and again, they helped Christians. They knew that this was not a spectator sport. They were eager to pitch in and help. Having tasted the love of Christ themselves, they sought to extend that love to others. In the church, friends, we should should learn a lesson from that. The ministry of serving belongs to everybody. And we don't need to sit around waiting for somebody to appoint us to some position of, of service. There's always some saint to be loved to be helped, to be served, to be cared for, to be prayed for, to be gotten to know. Get to know them and you will discover how you might help them. That's Paul's point. He wants us to be like this man in his household. William Barclay says, uh, in the early church, willing and spontaneous service was the beginning of official office. A man became a leader of the church not so much by any man-made appointment as because his life and work marked him out as one who all men must respect. All those who share the work and toil the gospel command respect, not because they've been appointed by a man to an office, but because they are doing the work of Christ. And so the point is uh, this, the chances are you will never be appointed to any position in the church if you don't show some faithfulness at something to which you give yourself already. Appoint yourself. Find somebody to love and love them. They addicted themselves to this. And so Paul then commands, in light of their their example, he commands, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Line up under, he says, those who have your best interest in mind. There is nobody easier to submit to than someone who has proved they love you by their service. And that is true in marriage as well as in the church. You know, when a wife knows that her husband is toiling away to care for her well-being, that he is dying to himself for the good of the family, he becomes easy to submit to, or so I'm told. (laughs) To illustrate this differently, the story is told that during the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode up past a group of soldiers preparing a defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. (laughs) 
The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and he said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. It was George Washington, not so high up, high up that he couldn't serve in the lowliest of duties. So in the church, model your life on people who serve. We're not a bunch of people trying to get on top of each other. We're to be a bunch of people trying to line up under those who serve. The church is to be a people finding people like Stephanus and his family, a a household like his, and submitting ourselves to that kind of living, learning from them, imitating them, following their manner of life. And so I simply ask us, what's in our heart? Do we want to be like the best servants of Jesus, or do we want to be like the biggest celebrities on reality TV? (laughs) Are solid and loving Christians our example? Or are people with fame and fortune and shallow lives our uh, greatest desire? As Jesus told the 12 disciples who were arguing with each other about which of them was the greatest, he said, (laughs) he he was responding to the disciples, the 12, arguing among themselves which of them was the greatest. And he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so the first thing Paul says is submit to those who serve you. The second thing Paul says is this in verses 17 and 18. Give recognition to those who refresh you. Go, go back to the text, verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Paul had, had genuinely missed these really messed up Christians because he loved them. And then and he's now in Ephesus, and that's where he's writing from. And then along came these three guys from Corinth to Ephesus, and Paul was absolutely thrilled to see them. He says, he says basically to the Corinthians, I loved you, I wanted you, I wanted to be with you, I wanted you to come and be with me. And since we couldn't be together, it was great that these three guys from the church came because they made up to me your absence. They refreshed me. Or what does that mean? Well, the idea of refreshing here is from the verb used by Jesus when he says of himself, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Refreshment, rest. It's that same idea. Somehow these believers gave rest to Paul's soul. Not salvation like Jesus does. But they helped. They encouraged Maybe they prayed with him. Certainly they prayed for him. They, they helped shoulder his burdens. They listened to his cares. They, they wept with him as he wept. And they rejoiced with him as he rejoiced. And in doing so, they lifted his spirits. Now look, for us, there is a lot that can get us down in the Christian life. 
mean, our own personal weaknesses, our failures, our sense of ongoing sinfulness and temptations, fatigue, physical illness, mental distress, emotional sorrow, disappointment with our own lack of Christ-likeness or disappointment with the growth of the body of Christ or, or simply lost family members who have not yet been found by the shepherd or, or wayward children who've not come home or, or opposition to the gospel and persecution and mockery by those who detest that you believe. There's, there's a lot that could get you down and weigh you down. And Paul needed to be lifted up. And sometimes, uh, and here, interestingly, he talks about those who helped him, but I think he actually helps us because sometimes the best way to help others is to be the kind of person who, like Paul, admits that the Christian life is hard. That, that I needed refreshment, he says, and they refreshed me. <laughs> so Paul isn't calling on us to be superheroes and, or Stoics who pretend that everything is always okay and nothing is ever wrong. You know, plastic Christians who always wear a smile and always speak positively and cheerfully because nothing ever bothers them. I'm as tempted to fake it as anybody. But we live in a broken world and we're broken people and there are real sorrows. And so Paul, Paul says, I was, I was down, I needed to be refreshed and lifted and helped, and that's what they did. They did that for me. They came alongside. And so then Paul says, where you find those people, recognize those people. Give recognition to them. In this book, he names them, I will not embarrass you by naming you just now. But many of you have refreshed me over the years. May God increase our body in its ability to look at another person and rather than criticize them, commend them. And rather than see the bad, commend the good. It steals no glory from Jesus to lift up those who serve on his behalf and say, Jesus has worked in them and through them for my well-being. And so that's the second thing he says. Not only does he tell them to submit to those who serve them, he says give recognition to those who refresh you. In the third place, in verses 19 and 20, he says affectionately greet those in the family of God. Verses 19 and 20, he speaks of the churches in Asia sending their greetings. And then he speaks of this husband and wife duo, Aquila and Prisca here, Paul calls her Prisca. Some of your translations say Priscilla, though uh, it's, it's, listen, it's the same woman. It's the same, it's a variation of her name. And in, Luke always calls her Priscilla, or at least sometimes does. Paul always calls her Prisca. But your translators, to confuse you less than I just did, sometimes translate it just only one way or the other. Anyway. Same woman, one woman, Aquila and Priscilla. She's usually listed first, which is an honor to her and a credit and a testimony to her godliness, evidently, because together they were absolutely amazing Christians. Uh, They had been in Rome, but then the emperor of Rome, Claudius, had kicked out all the Jews and, and being of Jewish descent, though 
believers, they, they got kicked out. They went to Corinth. They met Paul in Corinth. And Paul lived in their home. And he worked with them as tent maker with them. And then they eventually left Corinth and went to Ephesus. So they're now sending greetings back to the Corinthians who know them. Later, they end up making their way back to Rome and the church meets in their home there. They were amazing people. They were courageous people. Paul says of them in Romans 16 verse 4 that they were his fellow workers who had risked their lives for him. They'd they'd, they'd risked their necks. He doesn't tell you how. He just says they did. And they were mature Christians. I say that because we know that when Apollos... uh, who uh, first encountered them in Ephesus, uh, he was preaching about Jesus, but he didn't know as much as he needed to know. And they took him in, and they tutored him in the faith, and they helped him grow spiritually. And then he went out, and he more faithfully explained the gospel to people because they had been mature and taught it to him. They were also hospitable Christians, In Rome and in Corinth, the church met in their home. Uh, And so uh, now, with Paul at Ephesus, they they heartily, he says, heartily greet the believers in Corinth. As does the church in their home, as do the brothers. Everybody's in on it. Everybody sends their love and their greeting. And so then Paul turns around and he says to the Corinthians... You greet one another too. Now these are the people who are at one another's throats. These are the people who hate one another's ministers. Uh, These are the people who are suing each other in court. And Paul says, put your arms around each other, folks, and give one another a holy kiss. Um, It's amazing. He, He tells them, look, you've got to do this. You've got to welcome one another because you've been welcomed by God. You've got to be friendly to one another because God has made you his friend. You've got to acknowledge that one another belong to the Lord because you're family together in the Lord. And so, um, so he commands them to greet one another. Now let me say, and let me commend the people of God at Redeemer. As your pastor, I, I feel compelled at, based on this kind of text to say, just in uh, the last uh, months, I've, I've, we've had visitors who have commented to others, those comments have come back to me, that it seemed like you actually like one another. Now, I immediately thought, what church have they been in? Uh, And how how sad and tragic and difficult that must have been. But it's the case, and I realize some of you don't even know each other, and maybe some of you don't really even like each other. But it appeared, (laughs) it appeared... Which is always good. You know, let's, all, let's all fake it. It appeared that you were warm and friendly and interested in one another. And I praise God for that. And I commend the body for that. Let me add that. I also think, I also think that does characterize our community. I've thought that for a long time. And I hope it does more and more even as we grow. Because, you know, the collection of a mere group of strangers who are barely even acquaintances, isn't what the church ought to be. We ought to be warm-hearted and loving towards one another, knit together in the bonds of love. Now, let me add this, though. If, however, you're, well, if you're new among us, maybe you don't know any of us very well at all, and you're going, what? Uh, Or 
Maybe nobody greeted you when you came in the door. Or maybe nobody will say hi to you on the way out. May it never be. Or maybe you've been among us for some time, and yet you regularly feel alone in the crowd. I want you to know I understand that, and that happens. And I would venture to guess that most people sometimes feel like, even in the midst of their closest family and friends, that they are kind of alone in life, even in that context. That may be how you feel even here in this congregation. I wish that wasn't the case. If I could change it uh, by snapping my fingers, I would make it so. But we do, that, that just means we do need to remember that we don't all know one another very well, and we all need friends in the body of Christ. And so we need to be intentional about reaching out and greeting one another. And then Paul says here, here's how you do it. You kiss each other. Now, if you're visiting today, the line starts at the back of the sanctuary when we're done. No, I'm teasing. Fear not. You don't need to duck out of the church so that you don't get kissed. There's more that could be said about that. But I I don't think Paul means that we must, that we in every culture must make our greeting a kiss. I don't think he commands that of all cultures. Ordinarily, this would have been a kind of, in that day, it was very customary in in that day and that culture for a greeting between people who were either friends or who were uh, superiors and inferiors uh, to kiss one another in certain ways. And it usually would have been men kissing men and women kissing women or, or even fake kissing, you know, with the side to side, but you don't really touch the lips to the cheeks. Somebody explained this to me when I went to Mexico to be prepared for this uh, holy kiss that they did in the church there. And uh, sometimes we felt the lips and sometimes we didn't. Um, In the East and Eastern cultures, which I've never been in, even today, a kiss on the cheek, um, even that pretend kiss is a common way of greeting one another. It's, It's very cultural. It's not American culture at all. At some point in the history of the church, people began to do this kiss actually during the communion service. It was, it was a a part of the rite of the celebration of the Lord's Supper that either just prior to or after there would be passed around the kiss of peace. The holy kiss will greet one another and then we'll share the common meal together. And we understand why that, that might have become part of the liturgy of the church if it was so common among the people of the church. But this is not a command here that at the celebration of the supper we have to kiss one another. It's just commanding a very culturally appropriate way of expressing greeting and welcome and, and friendship to one another. In Mexico, some, as I alluded to, sometimes people kiss. I know a young boy who traveled there to help a church, and it was the custom of the people when they arrived uh, in gathering to greet everybody else. And so all these Americans had come to a meal with all these Mexicans and Two teenage girls walked up late to the party and they went around the circle of the entire community and leaned in for the kiss. And this young man leaned back and away and fell flat on his backside. And everybody laughed. It was hilarious. This may not be your thing. I get it. 
We don't have to introduce holy kissing. That's not our custom. But a warm handshake, a hand on the shoulder, if you're a hugger, then hug. If uh, I know some of you remember Jesse Charles and his hugs. We could use more Jesse Charles huggers at Redeemer, I'm sure. But be sensitive. Not everybody's a hugger. <laughs> when I was in Peru, the church members made it a point never to leave until they had shaken the hand of everybody. Now that can take... That can take <laughs> A long time to get out of the church if we do that. We don't have to do that either. But we ought to greet one another heartily. And we should learn to do so physically and not just verbally. In college, I was in a campus ministry where the guys did this mostly with words. I I think because we were so self-conscious about physical touch in our own bodies. We didn't want anybody touching ours or we didn't want to touch theirs. Unfortunately, uh, the one expression of greeting was to look at each other, kind of nod our heads and say, bro, you know, sup, bro. Well, we didn't say sup, that's later than my years in college, but, but that was it. Now, the fact is, the fact is, that was a very large campus ministry, but the fact is um, that, that people use that as a substitute for actually knowing the name of the person you were talking to. And, and, and after you had met a person long enough, and I'm the first to say it takes me ten times to learn your name, uh, it became very artificial and unfriendly. This person doesn't know my name and has never used it. Um, and we ought, to, we ought to learn to know one another's names. But I think, I think there's something about the culture that Paul is commending that says we ought to learn to express affection with touch. It's okay, you know, when we crowd up at the Lord's table, if you accidentally bump shoulders with one another, uh, even by accident, we express so much of the Lord's love and affection and acceptance of us when we greet one another. So Paul says three things. Submit to those who serve you. Give recognition to those who refresh you. Affectionately greet those in the family of God. And he closes then in verses 21 through 24, speaking of his love and of his longing. Having dictated this with his own hand in verse 22, uh, having dictated the letter and then written verse 22 and following with his own hand, adding his own greeting, he says something extremely surprising and then something that might be very unexpected. The surprising thing is, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now listen, don't misunderstand him. He's not talking about some spe- having some special degree of love. He's talking about having no love. Every believer feels like they should have more love for Jesus than they do. That's actually the part of actual love. Desiring that you would love them more than you do. Christians can sing with John Newton, Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought, but when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. We can sing that, cold. 
my warmest thought. And we can confess that. But the question really is, do you love him? Do you love him at all? Do you wish you loved him more? That's a good sign. Don't fear Paul's words. They don't apply to you. But those who don't love Jesus at all, Paul is saying, don't wish that they loved him more because they don't love him. They don't care. Paul is saying, not even a little bit. They are a curse. And that's strong. But consider this. It is a very serious thing to hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And to scorn that love, to turn your back upon that love and say, I want nothing to do that leaves you in the place of the curse. Jesus goes on in that same chapter, John 3, I quoted you 3.16. He ends that chapter by saying, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, you're already under wrath. That's the same as what Paul is saying. You're under a curse. You will will remain under a curse. And the point of the gospel and the goodness of the cross is precisely that Jesus has come to free you from the wrath and curse by bearing it for you. So don't scorn his love. And so because Paul trusts this Jesus, he says, come, Lord Jesus. That's his longing. It's the cry, come back. I want to be with you. That's how you know you love. And then his last word to a messed up church is prayer for grace and a word of his own love. I love you. Would you have said that to messed up Christians like the Corinthians? Let every parent and every sibling And every friend and every leader in the church who would correct others take this to heart. Those who need to be rebuked need grace and love, especially from those who rebuke them. Love others. Serve them. Honor them, recognize them, greet them affectionately, do all these things and love them because you have been loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love of Christ and thank you that he's the servant of all who humbled himself to the lowest place and you exalted him above all. We pray that you would make us more like him that we might, as we share in his sufferings, also share in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and praise his name, calling upon him.